Welcome to the show, and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, as we explore everything from Space Kraken to Giant Sandworms. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash and use my code IsaacArthur. Good afternoon everyone and welcome to the SFIA Monthly Livestream Q&A. We'll get started in just a moment, but go ahead and start getting your questions into the chat window so our moderators can start relaying those to me as soon as we start. Please try to keep the questions concise and watch your spelling, and try to be polite to others in the chat. We usually go for about an hour so you probably want to grab a drink and a snack, though we'll take a break about halfway through too. With all that said, welcome and let's get started. Oops. Well, camera start off. There's always some glitch five seconds before we start the episode. So, good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to episode, I believe it's 39, live stream 39, where we still haven't ironed out all of our glitches at the beginning of the show because we only do it once a month. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Science and Futurism with Isaac Arthur for our monthly live stream QA. We'll be getting to all of your questions in just a moment. Please get them into the chat window. And the person who showed up for just a second we began is my wife, the lovely Sarah Fowler Arthur who will be asking questions of us today as we go through. So get your questions through the mods, they'll relay them to her, she'll ask them to me, and I will hopefully give us some sort of halfway sane answer. We have one from last month we'll go ahead and get started with. Yes, so uh, we had a question related a new discovered fungus from DeWall, and thank you DeWall for your super chat last month. And his question was about this fungus that was discovered in Russia that is said to consume radiation. And he wants to know if there could be any uses for that organism. And we were looking this up, and there's actually a couple different names, and it can block radiation. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, being projected as having implications for future space missions. And I actually had a chance to, uh, somewhat coincidentally since now and last month, chat with somebody from NASA Ames who actually was working on this project, uh, Chris Marrow himself from Red House Studio, uh, he's been working uh, with NASA Ames to develop a uh, fungi and microcultural uh, building block that they're actually using right now in Namibia to help build houses, but it's being prototyped for use on the moon inside thin pockets where they grow like uh, algae. Then, you know, when that is ready to go, they'll harvest that, dry it out, grow mushrooms on it, grab that, and compress it to blocks. They call them microblocks. So that is actually a really cool topic. We're going to be looking at more in about two months because it inspired me to write a script called Self-Growing Habitat and um, also I'll be getting a chance to do the keynote speech uh, for the biomimicry biocene discussion uh, at NASA Glen here in May not too long after that uh, episode comes out but uh, it's a really kind of cool area to think that these kind of mutant funguses you really wouldn't expect to be around so much although a lot of them are also naturally going to uh, these melanin-rich ones can actually have this kind of role in helping protect us from ionizing radi uh, radiation. And uh, this is the big missing factor in so much of our space conversation all the time is we say space is empty. It's uh, space is full of a lot of empty space, but this is not true. It's empty of everything nice. It's full of dangerous radiation. So anything we can do to kind of cut down on those ones is, is really helpful. You can use like magnetic fields to help deflect particles 
they're ionized, you know, uh, mass particles such as solar wind, but they won't do anything against X-rays and gamma. To those in UV, you just got to use raw mass to absorb them. And so these more melanin-rich organisms might be very useful for that. So um, I had been perusing Facebook right before we jumped on mm -hmm. here, and I saw this meme that said that, uh, sorry, I'm pulling it up. I think that the alien UFOs are just billionaires from other planets. And I thought that was hilarious because we have a question from Micah wanting to know if that you think that technological alien civilizations also get a drink and a snack before settling into your science program. <laughs> oh, uh, we are going to be here for about an hour or two, so this is a great time to be getting a drink and a snack. I think... Um, is a weird aspect of for those of us who go from like the 80s and 90s we missed apollo we missed all the fun apollo missions but we uh you know we kind of got that into the shuttle program that kind of disappointment of things not happening and then we have this big boom of it in the 2010s that is really a lot of this is folks like bezos and musk kind of pushing for that space development and um i don't think that they are all uh the actual ufo signs in question can't say for sure um but at the same time, I really would not be surprised if personal spacecraft for a very long time to co are probably going to be limited to folks in that kind of class range. Um, while we're talking about that, though, uh, one of the things we have going on in the background today is that we're going to be doing, and I mentioned this at the end of last episode on Thursday, we're going to be collecting topics for the, the Retort of the Outward Bound series. we got some episodes on Mars and the Moon coming up the next month or two, and it's made me feel like I'd like to spend a little bit more time on that series again, because it's been off on our side for a bit. And for those who remember that, that's like colonizing Mars, colonizing Mercury, colonizing Pluto, colonizing Saturn, colonizing a lot of things. And the thing is, we still didn't actually finish out all of the solar system, let alone anything outside the solar system besides kind of technically the Oort Cloud and Alpha Centauri. Um, and so today, at the end of the live stream, uh, probably with a minute or two delay at least, though, we're going to take the five most popular or interesting suggestions from the audience today and put those up on a poll over on our community tab for everybody to go vote on. And so we'll pick out whichever one of those is most popular to do as an episode. And then uh, that will be... Uh, so in the background, say why you're submitting those, submit your ideas, uh, and when people say they like them, say things about how much you like that topic, if you do, so that Sindri and some of the others who are in the moderation forum can see them pull them out, and uh, let me know about them. All right, so um, one other announcement. We actually have quite a few for today. I did want to go ahead and uh, give our best to Paul Shalito from Curious Droid. Uh, for those of you who remember, we did an episode together on uh, Mars colonization maybe three or four years ago. Uh, and he just came out yesterday announcing that he'd been kind of um, not about as much with his channel of late because he'd been battling prostate cancer, and it looks like he's winning that battle now at this point in time, but just I imagine we have a lot of Curious Droid fans in the audience, you know, make sure to pop over to his channel, give him your best luck and best wishes, and believe it or not, no matter how many messages you might get as a YouTube, uh, you know, channel creator, you always love hearing that bits of good news, they really do cheer up your day, so, um, you know, we're wishing him all the best, he's a really good guy, you know, on and off camera, one thing I like about YouTube is most people I meet and talk to, they're all exactly like they are on camera, they're all just nice people, so, alright, back to your questions. So Kellen Wong wants to know what you expect a matryoshka brain AI to be like in terms of personality and interaction with humans. 
kind of the critical thing about a match here is is I almost never really think of it as having a personality. Um, it's a, only a very little bit of hyperbole to say that that's about the closest thing to God you can create in a finite universe. Because, of course, you could do a bigger scale thing like a K3 brain instead of a K2 one. For those who don't know, a Machioska brain is a hypothetical computer that, uh, in simplest form, you build a big old wad of solar collectors around the entire sun. And, of course, the sun emits about 2 billion times the solar power that Earth receives in a given moment. So that's a lot of electricity to be running a computer. Thus, 2 billion times what you could run with just this planet. Um, and then, of course, we don't really use nearly as much power to run our computer systems as we do the planet. So you're looking at something that's at least, without any improvements in technology, a billion, billion times faster than all of our current computing combined, without any technological improvements on, say, panels or computing power. Um, and uh, the Machioska part, the mini-layer dollar effect, has to do the idea that you're recycling to even do better than that by you know, maybe a factor of 10 by doing mini-nested layers. But fundamentally, it's, it's a star brain. It's a computer powered by an entire star. And the idea is that if that was an artificial intelligence, it would be insanely powerful you know and uh we don't get to see too many actual looks at those one of the best i think was um in isaac asthma's uh short story uh last answer and that's used with last question which is more famous and also features a really small computer uh in uh, last answer they have seen together all of the computers in the whole galaxy by hyperspace. They can all talk to each other instantly. So they can ask it the very important deep thought style question of, uh, you know, to the computer. They say to it, Multivac, is there a god? And one of the guys is busy trying to unplug the computer because he sees something's going wrong. And he gets hit by a bolt of lightning. And it says, yes, now there is a god. So the scale that we talk about when we talk about matriarchal brains is sort of at a scale where... You know, unless you're doing kind of like the, the old school pantheonistic great gods, you're not really expecting to see what we think of as a personality. Um, now, in terms of being able to run simulated people, we used to say could run something like a trillion, trillion, trillion uh, simulated minds at the usual estimates for what you need to simulate a human. They're just insanely powerful. So I don't really tend to think of them as personalities as so much as just really big computers you put all the stuff on. Same as like a planet, you know? Um, but in terms of a specific personality, I don't know, uh, probably pretty impressive whenever it wanted to be. Okay, so the next question here is from Tuman, and he says, so do you think that an artificial intelligence programmed from the ground up, and not with machine learning or a copied human mind, could be philosophical, make up a fictional story, or think abstractly? We would tend to assume why. The, the question on all this stuff is, how do you tell if something really is a person uh, if it quacks like a duck and it walks like a duck and it sounds like a duck? Uh, and at what point in time are you basically just kind of splitting hairs to find an excuse? And the, what I usually tell people on this one is, obviously, one, we'll have to wait and see. I think that's going to be really obvious if something does or doesn't. But um, if you, from a practical standpoint, right, are trying to tell me what qualifies as a person, I think it generally behooves you to state that once something's reached a certain, you know, probable cause to claim as a human, so not like a toaster, but, you know, something that can actually indicate in some fashion it probably is thinking, uh, you probably want to put the burden of proof on those who are trying to say it isn't a person at that point. You wouldn't really expect something to prove it's a person. It makes a decent case or application for why it is a personality, why it is you know, deserving of, of being treated just like anybody else. 
and then you have a, a high burden of proof to prove that it is not. And I say that just because almost every time I see someone try to put together qualifications for what qualifies as a human or a person, um, you end up excluding a lot of people that you tend to think probably shouldn't be excluded with almost any given category. So um, I don't think we know until we actually build some of these things if it really could be something that could write creatively or, or you know, put together poetry or things like that. But that shouldn't really be your definition anyway because I know a lot of people who cannot you know, write creatively or do poetry too. So. And, you know, they just started coming out a few years back with these articles that would write themselves essentially through the computer right. basis. And some of them are very right, yeah. imperceptibly different from something that a person is writing. I mean, yeah. you could argue that it's got presets, but it, it makes it a li little bit blurrier. And uh, I mean, we can again make the joke that that really is just indicative of what the usual quality of people's writing tends to be. But at the same well, time, yes. you can't, you know, like um, I have a lot of friends who, uh, you know, when I was in the army or uh, when I was teaching way back in college, it was, uh, you know, they'd show me something they'd written or calculated. It was cringeworthy. It's like, oh, uh, you managed to, in one case, uh, somebody misspelled every single word in a sentence. And that included his own name. <laughs> so, um, and yet, there's no doubt that that person was a person. I, you know, I wasn't talking to a random, unless we're getting to a very, very solipsistic case, not talking to a doorknob or something, you know, as a person. So we don't really want to set the stand too high. And again, we have a lot of AI who uh, who can definitely mimic those skills. So again, it's um, we don't really want to be assuming that that's the qualification for humanity. All right. We have a couple other questions here on artificial intelligence thought criminal wants to know what you think of artificial wombs and how far away is the technology and how will it impact society both elon musk and vitalik buterin were talking about artificial wombs recently wombs w okay yeah we were talking about that recently too we? uh my usual joke about this we always had this image of um you know like um things growing a big glass tank like uh, luke stalwalk uh luke skywalker in star wars um, and uh, when he's getting healed up after his encounter with Darth Vader on the ice planet of Hoth. And, um, you know, that's our image of like a growth tank or a cloning tank. In practice, it's more likely to be a big, uh, big Ziploc bag, like we call it, grow clone sheep and other things. Um, and, yeah, the thing to remember is that artificial wombs is a technology that solves a lot of problems. Like a lot of technologies in medicine, you use it, to deal with the deficiencies first, to special cases and problems. Um, you know, if you have someone who's having problems carrying the term, uh repeatedly, you might say, well, let's go ahead and do the fertilized embryo or the early embryo, move it and put it into an artificial room where we can grow a thing in the hospital. You know, here's your child safely where we are able to moderate 100% of the time. But that could to be very popular. Um, you might have examples like, well, I, I'm about to deploy to a war zone, I just got pregnant. Uh, I want my child, but I, I want to go do my duty too. So they might that might be a case of artificial wombs. There's a million little cases where something like that might be useful. And then as that technology improves, it can be useful. You can think of it as more elective uh, situation. Someone just doesn't want to be pregnant. Uh, and I don't know that saying means someone would be a bad parent if they just didn't want to be pregnant, you know. Um, or there's a million little cases where it could be very handy to do. And I think that that's a technology therefore that we will see definitely grow very quickly once you hit that reasonable success and comfort zone that lets the snowball begin. GC, Hey Isaac, I love your videos. You're my favorite sci-fi channel. I have two questions. One, 
Will you do a video on dark energy technologies similar to the dark matter one? No. <laughs> and two, yes. sorry, a video on probability manipulation. Um, you know, I was just thinking that we did the Big Rip episode, and, and well, that's really more the phantom energy variation of dark energy. Um, that is really hard to talk about dark energy technologies because there's just... Um, uh, I just realized the camera's slightly off the side of my computer model, isn't it? Okay, <laughs> we'll come back to that. Um, but, uh, oh my god, I just lost my train of thought. Dark matter. Dark energy technology. So we did the dark matter technologies one. We know a lot about dark matter except for what it is. So I could do some discussion of that. With dark energy, all we know is what it does. And so it's kind of hard to really speculate much about technologies for that. But we might do one at some point. Um, part two of that question was if in probability issues. Um, in Douglas Adams' classic Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, where we find out the answer to life, the universe, and everything is... 42. 42. <laughs> and <laughs> I've been saturating sci-fi since we started dating. Um, and um, in there they have something called the finite probability calculator, uh, which is it's able to make anything with a certain finite probability that you know take place. The infinite probability uh, drive is a variation that I use for the show, but we did an episode on that called Infinite Improbability Issues. It's famously the one with the quantum cheeseburger, which was randomly selected, although I'm grateful for it, as opposed to the other options, which were the quantum salad, the quantum chimichanga, um, and a couple other lunch items, too. But we actually did randomly select that title for that, so... All right, um, that's a good one to see for that issue. We might revisit again, though, because it's, it's just fun. Law of Improbability asks, How are space blockades likely to work? Obviously, things involving a bit more scale in 3D, but identifying what can be blocked seems fundamentally different. I think when we talk about like a blockade in the context of an armada, well, first, are we trying to keep people from leaving a planet, like the ships from again, Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back that were trying to flee Hoth, uh, or are they trying to land in the planet that's been blockaded? And uh, your first and, and biggest issue with that is that... Uh, you have to ask, what is the purpose of the blockade? If you're trying to keep out information, that's a very different type of blockade because it's very hard to lock out a laser beam that's a biased pencil coming from an unknown location, you know, that's sending information. Let's say I could be in a completely different solar system and I just use one bouncing location between me and my destination to send them a signal. Just by moving with that bouncing spot's at, that tiny little satellite, I can aim a little pencil-sized uh, laser beam full of information at a planet and get them all the info they could ever need, right? You really can't info embargo short of putting around a shell on the planet, which is possible. You might do a shell on the planet, a thin layer of solar panels, for instance, or something. Uh, blocking against people getting in resources, we say, well, you know, how they get we're going to stop them, we're going to stall them out. We're going to keep them from getting food and medical supplies. Um, I don't think that's ever going to work on any civilization that's actually able to colonize planets. Because how do you starve an entire planet out? I mean, let's say somebody blockaded us right now. The effect would be what? <laughs> so we do want to be kind of careful of these contexts when we talk about embargoes. I think you'd be much more likely to see something like that um, as a uh, guy, something you do don't own your sort of habitat. In that case, you still have to do a complete englobement. But you might actually do that. You might do the big inflated shell around the thing that just blocks everything coming in or out. And that seems like that would be the path to go.
All right, channel favorite Albert Jackinson says, Hey, Isaac, given all the advances in technology you talk about here, especially for everyday people, what do you expect is the next next for forensics in the next century or later? Could you ask that again? I got distracted trying to move some of Albert's previous questions. So. <laughs> well, he has had many questions. He wants to know about next forensic advances. Forensic? Forensic, yes. Okay. Um, hi, Albert. <laughs> so... There are certain names that you're doing the show long where you start recognizing the comments a lot more often. I think he and I have actually spoken sometimes we've done the Discord chat too. But um, we have some folks from actually been with us, I think, for the full seven or eight year run at this point too. And that's always amazing to me. Um, let's see. Uh, forensic technology. One that's very big, of course, is just the use of sheer data sorting. Right. This is probably the biggest one we're going to get to. It's not that we're going to get better at spotting something like here's one little DNA strand and see who it was very quickly so we could do a whole boom scan in a few minutes and know every last person had been in there for a while. It's more that we're going to have so many electronic and sensor devices all over the place. You know, they're just in the background that we're going to get very good at being able to pick out those little telltales that let us sort through. Like, right now you got someone's call logs. That's just something you have now. You know, you would never have had that 50 years ago. We know everybody who calls somebody now. Assuming they're not keeping that secret in some fashion. That's large. That's easy to pull. And we know how long the phone calls were. Just off their phone, right? We know how long it was, who it was, etc. That's a big help. Now imagine you've got all the photographs they've taken and they had a GPS location. Um, I don't know why photographs don't have GPS put on pretty much automatically these days, along with their date and time, but figure that's coming soon enough. There's going to be so many bits of information just embedded all around people in their, their small house, things like that that you're going to be able to find so many ways to just pick through that and just find out what the motive means opportunity forms any crime was. Okay, from Belshazzar, could a civilization make use of a neutron star? Have we done? I don't know if we've actually done an episode on neutron stars specifically. We did an episode on dying stars. Um, civilizations in time, dying stars. So I think that was more of a look at how to fix ours when it was getting older and also how to do white dwarfs. Yeah, neutron stars are very useful. You can basically, you can hammer two of them together to make a black hole, uh, which is useful, or make a awful lot of heavy elements like gold and platinum. Um, but it's not really the most efficient way. He said, what would we do with a neutron star? I don't think a civilization would ever be too inclined to actually let ones form naturally. But I think what would be handy about a neutron star just in general is that you can do a lot of transmutation nearby it. Wherever you have an awful lot of gravity, you could potentially be sending a particle beam around it in a tight orbit. And that can be used in much the same way a superclider can. Then we can do this with Black Hole too to do some really impressive alchemy. That's uh, actually the topic for episode nuclear transmutation that I think is coming up the last week of February or the first week of March. One of the two. All right. Well, John Dahlberg says, Hey, Isaac, I've heard you talk about the potential for huge populations in the future. Can you discuss how that type of growth could play out in developed countries with low birth rates currently? Hmm. Uh, I think the biggest thing here is, is that we should keep in mind that the population growth of any given region, and, and we might be careful even saying country here, because population growth around a country is not a static thing. You know, what is New York City is not what it is in L.A. or Chicago, let alone what it is in a rural area or a suburban area. Right? These are not the same, and they should not be compared. We have... As it's something that's one of my notorious button issues. We have an awful lot of very um, careless discussion of how population growth or, or decline 
takes place that's almost always framed in the context of looking at a specific country's overall total population birth rate or immigration or population and drawing wild, you know, analogies off that and say, well, what was it 20 years ago? They're seeing what's going to be in 20 years. What was it 20 years ago? Um, another one was one time I pulled all the data from the 10 richest countries and uh, I said, well, the 10 richest countries, if, if, if wealth and development are going to be what controls population growth, presumably should be your 10 least uh, growing nations, once the lowest birth rates. And that particular year, there wasn't a single match. You know, not one of the 10 lowest growing population places was also one of the 10 wealthiest nations, GDP-wise, uh, per capita. And that tells me that there was, you know, less correlation than random odds. So I think there was a narrative people have about the population rate declining that in many cases is looking at countries that are, quote, developed. Well, these are countries that are already very full of people, right? Population growth rates are always a little bit slower in cities, too. Highly urbanized areas are not going to grow as fast. A lot of this has to do with people having developed uh, better birth control technologies, better cultural appreciations for wanting to actually have, uh, you know, not get pregnant as soon as you're 18, right? Not start a family that early. These things themselves do not represent eternal trends that you can just push out to infinity. And they're often treated that way. So a question that comes up all the time on this channel is, why do you think in the future we're going to need lots more plants, lots more habitats, room for trillions upon trillions of people when the population uh, is declining? And you say, well, it's not. It's, it's not declining at all. It was 6 billion uh, and a little bit of change in 2000. It's going to hit 8 billion in a couple more years. And it was like 2 billion at the start of the previous century. Show me one year after the global plant has actually had the population decline, I'd be surprised, in the last few centuries. And uh, I assume that that probably is more indicative of, of why. We always say, this is the same thing like cycles in history. People talk about an inevitability of things happening over and over again. Wheels are not natural. We made them. It was all a thing that we invented. Uh, they spin around over and over again to move something from point A to point B, or to engage in some intentionally cyclic pattern. Then they stop moving. You know, they don't have a reason why they move like that. Things in history or behaviors about people, or trends and traditions, have things driving them. And we don't want to look at just the data and say, well, based on this curve, this is what's going to happen. Ask instead, which is how we do science, why is it doing this specific thing? And I think that's come very important for a lot of people when they're trying to predict these things, because so often with the population trend data, just for over a century now, almost every prediction has been wholly wrong. And I'm not going to give you a prediction about what it's going to be, because I'll be wrong too. If you don't know why it's going to be these things, mining that's going to be different in every region of the planet based on culture, based on something as small as what the most popular new movie was that year, like Sword and Green comes out and makes you a little bit nervous about starting a family, you know? These things are not easily predictable, and they sh you, you go by what causes people to do something. But I would usually say, as a whole, species are designed to reproduce more than they need to survive with, technology so i don't really see them declining in numbers as long as they can comfortably glow that's where we get that basic concept from and um that's why i tend to assume the population will keep growing as long as we comfortably can do so we have another web fan that says hi isaac from us in very cold amsterdam new york just to say thanks for all the videos you upload we love sci-fi physics and astronomy and your videos and narrative are superior to anything on tv <laughs> Thank you for that flattery. <laughs> it is appreciated. Um, yeah, uh, thank you. And then we have a question from Tim and Yo. Hi, how would you attack a McKendry cylinder? 
Uh, for context, and I think we'll try to get this one up quick and one more before we go to the break. Uh, McKendry cylinders are like O'Neill cylinders. They're gigantic orbiting habitats, except that they are what we call continent class one. Whereas like O'Neill cylinders come in island three designs, things that might be the size of a large town or maybe a small county. Uh, a McKendry cylinder is the size of a continent, right? It might be a medium-sized country to as big as a plant, depending on how you build it in terms of its living area. And it might have multiple levels. That's the main difference there. The way you attack one would probably be to cut off its actual external power supply if it was getting it from like the sun. And if it's not getting it from the sun, then your way would probably be to try to make sure it can't get rid of its heat. Because most of those things are probably going to be producing more heat if they're not getting sunlight in than they could naturally radiate away just from the cylinder itself. So bouncing energy in these things, you know, obviously they are sensitive just being blown up, but I think if you're not trying to just blow the thing up uh, and kill billions of people in one shot, your way of doing that would just be to kind of reflect energy back in onto it so that it was not cooling. So just kind of turn the thermostat up on everybody very slowly until they got uncomfortable and surrendered. <laughs> so you don't ever want to actually send in infantry forces in a kind of a modern sense into any sort of rotating habitat. That is a pair of horrible bottlenecks you'll get decimated. It is, it is not an invasion-friendly environment. <laughs> Anthony Lundgaard says, back in 2017, you made a video about usable rockets. With all of the new advances in the field, are you going to do something like an update in your video? Um, maybe. Yeah, a lot of times I try to stay away from whatever's coming out this year. Uh, part of that is because there really are a lot of other people who do great videos on those, and faster too. I write an episode, and it's about three months before it ever actually shows up on the screen. You know, there are exceptions. We've... The like tributes when somebody passed on, we got out like the next day, uh, as was the case with, like Dyson, um, when Freeman Dyson passed away last year. But uh, in most cases, we have a few months of time like, to develop them. I take my time to see what the developments are. Um, whereas we have a lot of folks who are very fast about turning them around, and they can do just as good a look because there isn't a lot to speculate about. They are, they're detailing how this particular piece of technology specifically is going to do stuff. Um, so I don't really mind doing something like an update on reusable rockets, but... I, nothing that we've had really happen recently strikes me as requiring an update at this time. Right, let's go ahead and go to uh, our break, and we'll be back in four minutes. We'll see you then. So we have a quick break for a few minutes, and it's a great time to get more questions into our moderators for part two. We always run out of time for questions, but we try to get to as many as possible, and roughly in the order asked, and I try to answer those left afterwards in the show's comments. One from last month was, Isaac, if you were given the task of choosing a first contact team, what specialties would be on your list and why? And it's a great question because we often see this in science fiction, and a lot of times the answers aren't really very logical, even down to including a linguist who is an expert at human communication and who might be less useful than a biologist or mathematician for generic usefulness at figuring out what the aliens use for communicating and the basic patterns. A lawyer, or a politician, or police officer, or a professional criminal interrogator would be tempting to include too, because I want someone used to detecting deceitful behavior and also good at dodging questions. This would probably be my picks by default if I had to, though that's not how I would run a first contact or expect it to occur. First and foremost, it depends on the nature of that contact, because a setting message we receive is very different than us encountering another ship in deep space, moving at some fraction of light speed, a few light days away from our own ship doing the same. 
Both are much more likely than the usual sci-fi image of us encountering a ship and parking next to them to relay hailing messages while close enough to exchange gunfire, which is a bad idea simply because the quick communication and close range add urgency and worry to the exchanges that isn't necessary, making a nervous situation all the more volatile. Trading messages at email or snail mail speeds is better than phone call speeds, let alone one actually in person, which should only plausibly ever happen if making first contact with a civilization that has no radio or high technology. Now for sending a team over to the ship, and as a first contact scenario, this just seems insane unless we're talking about a first contact contingency plan for some team sent to explore alien ruins we believe are empty and the team has a first contact protocol rehearsed against the eventuality they get cut off from communication and encounter aliens. Which is decently likely since that implies either alien life was pretty well hidden from scans and thus in areas with bad signals perhaps, or has ambushed you to get some answers about why you're in their territory. If you know they were there, then your first contact team shouldn't be anybody you value, If they're technological, they probably have brain scanners and an unhealthy interest in disassembling lifeforms to see what makes them tick, and you're gambling on their ethics being somewhat decently analogous to our own. If you lose, then they have your crew members to analyze, and there is actually a good chance you're consigning them to repeated resurrection and torment while they take their brain data and recordings and scans and use that to rebuild them, biologically or digitally, over and over to use as potentially frame-jacked test subjects of behavior. A few days of virtually simulated existence sped up a million fold, and running with thousands of copies in parallel might be dissecting those explorers over and over while running them through every scenario they can imagine to learn about human behavior, all the while designing weapons against our DNA and technology and psychology. This incidentally doesn't even imply they are hostile. The aliens might simply consider that a common sense approach, and your crew might be returned to you unaware this was done to them and is still being done to their copies. So you send a relatively simple robot and remote control it. That's your first contact crew, a nice sterile robot with basic tech and no genetic samples or brains to read, no bombs on board or suicide devices because they might detect that and view it as hostile, you send me a bomb to their ship. Then your real crew is far away able to discuss answers among many fields and able to incinerate their own ship down to the atoms if the aliens attempted to board them instead of politely asking questions and giving answers. And now, back to the show and answers to more of your questions. Alright, and we're back. As a quick reminder for everyone as we get into uh, part 2 here, uh, we are also trying to collect episode suggestions for Port of Beyond after the episode uh, for continuing the Outward Bound series, episodes like Colonizing Pluto, Mercury, etc. They're not ones we haven't done before, the only ones we haven't done before. Also, we're going to try to move a little bit faster through questions here in part two. So. I always remind you that we get a lot of questions in at the beginning and then it's hard to uh, get the answers out. So going back to Isaac Bordeaux, he says, I hope you guys are having a good day. Do you have any thoughts on SpaceX's plan to catch starships? Catch starships? Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, don't. Uh, I, I didn't catch that one. Every so often it's surprising there's a lot of bits of news on space I, I, I tend not to miss. Uh, this week I've been a little bit distracted. Uh, we had a, a friend recently from my old unit who passed away, Sean French, who also, uh, like Paul Schlieder, been uh, fighting cancer for years now and he actually... Uh, he uh, unfortunately did lose his battle with that uh, uh, last week. 
uh, Sean and I started to get on Iraq, and he was a really great guy. So, um, just you know, hopefully his his family could be uh, kept strong during that. So, uh, also uh, we were going flying, which is slightly more exciting, I suppose. Um, we <laughs> our uh, own plan to catch flying. starships. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And uh, for me, it was curious because actually, I posted on my personal Facebook page, which is public. Um, but uh, I posted like an abridged version of it, and it was my first time actually flying myself, actually, you know, controlling it. And uh, scary experience if you're not used to it. Um, and this is actually only my second time in airplanes since I got out of the military, uh, well over a decade ago. So, uh, it was, it was a little actually, windy yesterday. It was, well, yeah, it was very windy on the crosswinds. Uh, you don't learn, learn anything by only doing the safest bit of it, but uh, it is. Definitely experience to catch up on. My wife is a much better pilot than me already. And I've only flown twice. Yeah, it's not the least bit of flattery. They think so too. So, <laughs> <laughs> so she's definitely the better pilot there. Well, uh, didn't one of your fans say you needed the hands of a woman to fly well? Yeah, but I, I, I found that usually speaking, I got the big mitts. So, you know, let's <laughs> uh, get to, to the questions. Yeah, so we have a super <laughs> chat. Thank you, TKG from Wildfire. And he says the A, Lagrange wheel, is when six similarly sized objects are 60 degrees around an orbital path, locking each of them by the L3, L4, and L5 Lagrange points. What would be the implementation of this concept into the future? Okay, well, usually we think more like of a Kempler or Rosette, which doesn't actually have to have just six members. Um, any two objects are going to produce an L4 and L5 point 60 degrees forward and back of them on the orbital path of the, of the larger one with a very disproportionate. You can also put any number of objects either around one object or just around each other as a big circle. Uh, like you could have a hundred or size plants all orbiting nothing at all. You know, you put a sun in the middle, but they would actually still orbit if there wasn't a sun there, though slower, uh, just as a big ring. I think you'll be seeing an awful lot of variations on that that have to do with obviously the fact that you never really get to have control over your exact situation with gravity and area of interest because usually it's a big massive object there. So I think that that will be one of the many examples of orbital mechanics we have to try to take advantage of because we're kind of forced to. A little bit like the L2 halo thing that we've got going out with the James Webb uh, telescope where it orbits around nothing at all at the L2 point because the L2 is not actually stable. So. Oh, okay. Um, Bobo Master, how large could the population of an intergalactic civilization with metastructures be in the goggles? In the... Goggles? Goggles? I suppose. It's not spelled that way, but it could be. Um, how big can a K3 civilization be in terms of population? I suppose if we were talking about a... Uh, if it was running at the Landau limit... I think we said you could get, uh, and, and it was one of you had, say, six degrees Kelvin or something like that. You could probably get away with running somewhere north of 10 to the 42 people simultaneously, but it depends on how quickly you're running them. Um, you are welcome to go ahead and do the math on what 10 to 42 is a million, trillion, 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 I think, though. Grain of salt, uh, just run through the calculations we looked at back in the civilizations the entire the original episode, actually, uh, Black Hole Farming. And then just, you know, take the actual luminosity of the galaxy, I suppose, for that. That should be about your right answer, as opposed to the luminosity of our sun or a specific hockey radiation black hole. Okay. Maybe. And <laughs> U92 Element says, so what do you think can be done about Kessler Syndrome? We have an episode on that coming up. Um, in what? Uh, I just got proved, so it'll be... 
Okay, February 10th and February 13th are episodes on Kessler Syndrome and on other things called uh, That Could Imprison a Planet. So we will we will bypass that for now, but you have a lot of options. Uh, everything from nuking orbits, which is not before, but could work in some cases, uh, to laser booms. We'll discuss this a bit more in that episode. So tune in, 9 a.m. Thursday morning, <laughs> yeah. to Isaac's YouTube channel. Yes. <laughs> All oh, right. there's another one. Uh, people have been asking us to kind of put things on more mediums, and for the longest time, basically, I put the audio-only versions for free up on SoundCloud, and I put the video here, and um, you know we shared the links to other places and said you, know, you can get it either location. But uh, as we were on things like Nebula, we put on iTunes, Spotify, uh, it's on Amazon Music, it's on Audible, these are the audio-only versions, and we have also gotten around at request to putting it over on Rumble, which is a YouTube alternative that's been getting kind of popular in more recent uh, years. And uh, for the moment, because that one was very easy to do to start uploading, but apparently it would take about a month to finish uploading all of our videos because there's like one every other hour. So you can also find us now there. Uh, this person said, has a, a tagline, this is new. Hi, Isaac and Sarah. Could copper be a bottleneck element for intelligent life expansion? Being the only good conductor at the temperature range where water is liquid and all Earth life needs liquid water. I don't know if I'd say that. I mean, silver is a magnificent conductor, and I mean, it's not as common as, as copper, obviously, but uh, um, there are a lot of other things that can serve as, as conductors. It's a decent one, but that is a fair point. We talked about phosphorus scarcity um, a year or two ago for the Fermi Paradox. That's a very popular one because life depends on that, but... There are a lot of elements that could limit a civilization to expanding, um, you know, uh, that might not be as common as you think. Some are going to be really common. You're not going to find plants that don't have silicon on them or aluminum, though those are limitations you might find in underwater civilization that there's no way to make use of them. Um, but yeah, copper could be scarce enough in, in some circumstances that you really couldn't do very good wiring, and so they don't really get, you know, too much electricity going on. But I, I feel like that would just be a delay. And, you know, I don't really like the Malthusian approach of Doomsday of saying civilizations only have so much time to get into space before they die. We have to remember when we talk about things like counterclocks on civilizations because if they don't get done by this period of time, they'll have used up this resource, fossil fuels, or you know, wreck the atmosphere or wreck the environment. Uh, we have to keep in mind that those are usually assumptions of a very high-tech civilization like our own beating up their planet in some fashion or beating up each other. If you actually don't have those technologies in play, because you're taking, you're getting slow down developing them. Like because your cop is very short, and you wait until you develop something cheaper and better yourselves. Those really shouldn't have the counterclock honestly more than when we discovered pottery, that kind of thing. Tim and Yo want to know if ice could be used as a building material in the outer solar system. Yes, um, there's a lot of talk about using pyrite, which is basically ice with fibrous material in it. Um, ice is already used as a building material, or at least. Uh, in the same way that mud brick is used, for instance, is, is we have to work with it. You work with what you got in the environment. And one thing I like about ice is you can experiment a lot with it here on Earth. A problem, though, is that ice is, you know, there is no liquid in space. There are a few substances that can be liquid-ish in a vacuum, but by and large, things supplement directly. So you add a layer of almost any ice structure in space, you're going to need to cover that over like a layer of foil uh, to prevent it uh, sublimating that off and just having the ice boil away into space and lose it. Um, but uh, other than that, ice is one of those things that it's not just a question of is it useful to work with, it's more of a question of 
how do we find other ways to make it useful to work with because we're going to want to use it. There's so much of it going to be available. Okay. Thank you, Merv Johnson, for your super chat. Welcome back. How well could a cylinder habitat be converted to a bowl if it was flown to and embedded in a body with existing gravity, such as unity to the moon? Sure. Um, a point that we sometimes make is that if you wanted to add gravity on a place like the moon or Mars where gravity is pretty low, you can combine rotating gravity with, uh, with normal gravity. But the problem is that you need to do is kind of a, a wide bowl. People sometimes get the impression it's a very shallow bowl. In practice, it's going to be more like that, a very tight, urn-like thing, like a vase. Um, and at that point, what you're going to do is reconfigure the floor a little bit, I think. You could go wider, but more likely do a couple of tiered levels of flooring. And so it would look like a rotating habitat, picture of a normal one, only the downside, uh, well, the downside is which direction the actual planet is, has skin, gotten a little bit skinnier towards the bottom. Uh, there's a number of shapes that might be a little bit more convenient in terms of specific core, but you probably end up doing kind of a tiered garden thing on the way down. Okay. Rafflecopter Kerman, how bright would the night sky be in a K3 civilization galaxy with all the nav lights, drive plumes, and propellant outgassing? Would it be more luminous than our natural one? Um, that is a good question. I think it, it's hard to answer that one. Uh, by the way, the last one, the question was how hard would we to reconfigure those now I think about it, and the answer is not very hard at all. It, not easy, but not too hard to reconfigure a cylinder to your planet. Um, especially a low-gravity one. Um, let's see. K3 civilizations. You might, like, if you have a civilization that runs on black hole starship drives, you know, uh, the Google Blitz black hole ones, those should be detectable to us via SETI-type efforts right now, but they are in the gamma range. You're not going to see those much. Um... Alternatively, you know, if you have thousands of ships coming and going from a planet every day, which is not indicative of really all that much space traffic, to be honest, you're going to constantly be seeing something up in the sky looking like a meteor. There's only a lot of noise pollution. You can see the ISS with, you know, you can see it pretty clearly with a pair of binoculars, uh, but it's visible. Satellites are often visible moving through the sky to just our eyes. Now imagine you had a trillion of them and opened up a planet. And so, well, that's a lot. Um or even just a million, or maybe even just a million. It's a very bright sky at that point. Um, I think you'd probably have to have a lot of limitations on how, how much light pollution you got. Um, there are ways to kind of counteract that, but a lot of times you'd be saying, well, shift your, you know, shift your production into things that are not visible to the naked eye. Or you might just tell people, hey, this is, this is the price of living in the inner system. Go out to the outer system and go live inside this great big collection of cylinder habitats that have a opaque shell boat around them so they're all options but uh, light likely it will be bright. bright yeah probably very bright red coney isaac i'm a huge fan glad to be on the live stream and it's been a while for me my question is why do you believe that interstellar travel at relativistic speeds to travel the galaxy is possible or impossible um well it's in terms of it being possible I never think you'd actually have much traveling at like 99% of light speed. I think you'd almost always have stuff that was moving at more like at most half, but even 1% of light speed is pretty hard to do, even with fission drives. Even with a fusion drive, it, it can be tricky too. You know, usually when we talk about a fusion-based drive, um, our assumption is that we got basically the fusion going on and blowing off the back. In practice, a fusion power drive or a fission power drive is often just basically an ion drive, which isn't really going to be all that much more impressive. Than what we have now which can just keep pushing until it runs out of fuel but 
it might only get you up to you know 0.1 c um but the laser pushing option that we talk about a lot that is high energy something like the lasers but you got it you know and 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 you have all that energy boost up back and forth with so you probably would see spaceships taking advantage of that okay so a question from smiley face do you think there could be beings that live in wormholes or black holes like in the expanse and interstellar no uh I hope not. Think about well, those you know, giant probably worms. Probably not in the known physics. There are certain, there are certain scenarios of like multiverse concepts where the laws of physics are a bit different that you would have things like that happen. Yeah, even life forms built out of black holes, but not, not realistically inside our universe and all constraints. Okay, Gertjen Isnik, hello from the Netherlands. You've changed my life and given me hope for humanity and even purpose to my life. Thank you. That's. <laughs> I appreciate that. Okay, question now from Sano Bello. Have you ever come across a faster-than-light method that accounts for causality breaking other than one in the House of Suns? I like the one from the House of Suns. They, they basically just had set up the wormhole between two places, snip those two bits out from reality for the purpose of causality, uh, in terms of you couldn't see what was going on there. They are the, the, the Andromeda Galaxy basically disappeared millions of years before, and uh, I'm not going to spoil that book because you should absolutely go read it. It's, it's, it's his best novel, in my opinion. Alistair Reynolds. Uh, I love his series, Revelation Space, but as standalone books go, I love that novel. It's, it's probably one of the best science fiction novels I've ever written. Um, and, uh, yeah. <laughs> That's, I can't remember what the question was. No, not beyond things like that. Sean Ainsworth, thank you for all your work. The episodes and all of the work. I have watched all of them and rewatch any time when I have not much to do. Also, a big thanks to your lovely wife. Oh, that's me. Thank you. And all the people that have helped you, Sindri and etc. There are a lot of them. Um, I, there are, I mean, when I say there's like 100 people on the crew, there are folks who will leave for like a year or so and only pop by to hit a little message on, on one script. There are the folks who devote hours to it like every week. Um, and it varies just, you know, because again, I like people to only involve themselves in their spare time and where they're interested, but that group of people has over the years been totally invaluable, doesn't even cover enough. The show would probably not be around anymore if I didn't have all those other people there to kind of help stimulate the brain waves. Speaking of which, we had a question a little earlier from Nick Marco about what attracted you to make sci-fi videos. Oh, oh um, I'm Last night, we had occasion to use Facebook Watch for the first time as an app, and I got reminded of an old, old video I did before I was even on the Board of Elections that was an incredibly slow walkthrough of every single ballot issue that was on the ballot of my area. Just not, not in favor, just telling people what it was, like how much this levy would cost them, etc. And uh, I was reminded when I saw that 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 actually predates the show. And a lot of times I will say, because we always kind of rewrite history a little bit to ourselves, that there were no videos. Um, you know, the first video was Megastructure was back in September 2014. But I actually done quite a few random videos on this or that kind of topic before there was ever a channel or thought of it. The first video that's still up on the show, I delete all those to kind of clear the, the genre out because it became the Futurism channel, not Isaac's random posting page. Uh, that was because it wasn't anything special about it. I was just like, oh, I want to try out a couple new techniques. Um, like PowerPoint and video production, and I'd spend a lot of time in a world building forum on Facebook, and I constantly had come up, so I often had to explain certain kind of media structures to folks, because I was on, 
a little bit of a mild crusade uh, of beating the dead horse about trying to get sci-fi writers not to spend all their time on planets. You know, not the planetary chauvinism of one little colony on one planet as opposed to all these cool megastructures like the O'Neill Sondor. And so I decided to do a video that highlighted them all and had all the beautiful artwork from folks like Steve Bowers and others from Orion's own. And that's it. There wasn't supposed to be anything special about that. It wasn't meant to be an episode. It wasn't meant to be a channel. And uh, I just always like to put information out, <laughs> I guess. Welcome back, Simon Farmer. Thank you for your super chat. It says, if the first rule of warfare is to be the first to act in a combat situation, how important is the role of autonomous AI in warfare? Mm -hmm. Well, the first rule of warfare is always to be proactive and make sure you strike first. Uh, not because of the other first rule of warfare, which is always to wait to see what the other guy's going to do and then react to that strategically. <laughs> and, um, I think we had been dating about two months when I finally asked you how many first rules of warfare there were. <laughs> the second rule of warfare, as I occasionally tell people, I'd forgot about it for years, but it was the only time I ever heard one of my sergeants uh, in the military say... Uh, something and say that wasn't the most important thing, but like, you know, the second most important thing. And it was to always have uh, in your backpack a little Ziploc bag with a pair of dry socks and a spare pair of underwear. So I officially have the second rule of warfare is uh, always have dry socks, you know. Uh, always keep spare socks around. That is actually a really good idea, though, is always keep like a t-shirt and socks in a Ziploc bag in like your rucksack or your trunk, etc. Um, for those wet rainy days when you really, 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 really are just needing something to change into. Um, let's see. Autonomous warfare and AI, or is autonomous AI and warfare, what's the impact of that? You see, I'm trying to actually answer the questions faster, but I really don't do that, bro. <laughs> um, let's see. I mean, obviously, it's going to be a really huge impact overall in terms of how we let drones do this. But in the short term, we're not going to get, you know, I think there's probably going to be a treaty if there isn't already, but a feeling that uh drones should not be allowed to actually have the decision to file the actual decision to uh take any action that might kill a human should always have to actually have a human on the end of the switch i think that's probably gonna be the rule for quite some time with things like drones so that's my best guess in general terms okay smiley face says do you think a type 3 civilization would have a political divide amongst its population i think a type 3 civilization would not have any sort of political unity in general if you don't have fast and light travel, uh, you're not going to have anything like approaching homogenous civilization, except maybe, maybe in a post-stellar universe when everyone's got their brains slowed down to run at like, uh, you know, micro Kelvin temperatures, and so everything's basically slowed down to that digital land hour limit speed, where you know, for them, light really is traveling in the course of a, a minute across the entire galaxy. Because, you know, it was just going so slow. Other than that, I just can't imagine how you'd ever have that without FTL. And even with FTL, I don't expect to see me populated Dyson systems that had one, you know, culture of two civilizations that had just one one government. Um, usually what binds people together to actually have a unified government is either A, that government is offering them really superior services, or the perception of them. In all these cases, what people think is the case is as important as what it really is. Or they're offering them shared defense from an external threat. Um, in the absence of that, people generally are probably going to want to split up more. And I don't really think you'd have too many cases where even a Dyson sphere was actually a single unified polity in favor of something more like, you know, millions of them. But they might just have different tiers or levels. It's going to vary all across the galaxy, I'm sure. I just can't imagine a single unified K3 that 
even with FTL. So, Dara Cloak, Cloak, thank you for your super chat. Hello, Isaac. Do you believe that there are planets with eukaryotic life within 1,000 light years of our solar system? Eukaryotic life? Um, uh, you know, this is, a, this is a, a source of both agreement and disagreement simultaneously with myself and John Michael Godier. Um, if you haven't seen his show, by the way, Event Horizon, um, one of his more common guests. <laughs> John is awesome. But he is, he is strongly of the opinion that probably your strongest form of paradox filter is eukaryotic life, uh, or eukaryotic life, uh, cells with nuclei in them, um, developing in the first place. Uh, I think that's a potentially a very strong filter. I'm not sure it's as strong um, as some of the other options, but in terms of a great filter, it's a pretty good one. I don't expect to find any, any complicated life inside a thousand light years of us, but I, I feel if you're... If it evolves reasonably commonly, expect to find it within 100 light years. If not, then not. So if that is the great filter, then not within 1,000 light years of us. All right. So Twist says, do you think that the Earth is part of another alien civilization's territory? Potentially. Uh, you know, a lot of times we have to ask in context like this, um, how big of a space are we talking about with an alien civilization? We could be some Tyvo closet, you know, um... All the colonizable terraformable plants in the solar system number about a trillion, sorry, this galaxy, number about a trillion in that zone, right? If you take a trillionth of Earth's surface area, which is 510 square kilometers, or 510 trillion square kilometers, you'd have, uh, oh, square meters, you'd have 510 square meters. That would be, what, um, 24, 23 meters on each side, about, about the size of half a football field? That's not a very big space for a planet to be thought of, and that's a whole solar system, mind you, or planet. Not just like the whole, you know, just a little bit. It's like, about like a little zoo the size of a football field. So it's very easy to believe they'd set aside whole plants like ours to just be left alone. However, um, you know, in the Galactic Empire's war. However, I really can't imagine that we would be under somebody's protective shadow without knowing about it, to be honest, at this stage. There has to be a point where you start to tell them. And it, we're at that point of diminishing returns where it's like, why would you not? At this point, let us know. You know, if you ask people on poll, over half the population already thinks there are aliens often visiting Earth regularly. Um, so I don't think they're going to get much by waiting longer. And then the other bit is, how big of an area are we talking about for their empire? Because we usually are saying, oh, some stellar galactic empire, which is a very big difference. But what about a multiversal empire? You know, not just something like this local supercluster of uh, billions of galaxies, but the whole absorber universe, or even one that contains several trillion different universes that they all control and rule and may be created. You know, those are options you have to kind of think about when you start talking about territory. And then what's the answer is, I have no idea. Uh, I don't think we are, though. I don't think we are part of anybody's empire. So Raven609 wants to know why aliens don't wear clothes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, this one actually might be kind of fair. Um, I don't, you know... The usual assumption is that humans slowly lost our hair from a long time wearing clothes to adapt to other environments, but there's a lot of guesswork on that. And that's that's what it was last I paid attention to. That was probably at least a decade ago, so that might be not the theory anymore. Um, why yes, don't but aliens, aliens are usually not demonstrated with hair either. They're mm -hmm. usually portrayed as naked and hairless. Yeah, uh, I would say usually the biggest biggest thing they have going on is then diet. I think the Asgard and Stargate, they actually have Colonel O'Neill point out that they're all naked. Um, but you'd expect them to probably be wearing like a utility belt at least, just because it's so nice for you to carry stuff with you. Um, I really wouldn't expect to see naked aliens unless they had like built-in pouches like a kangaroo. 
And actually, if, if you know much about a kangaroo's pouch or a possum's pouch, that's not really a place you want to be putting anything you want to keep clean either. So I kind of assume everything is going to be carrying stuff around. Whether or not they'd actually have clothes for modesty's sake, I don't know. It depends on their planet. But you could easily have, like, almost all of all land mass that's livable is in the northern hemisphere of this planet, by coincidence. Though you got Antarctica is completely unlivable. You could easily have a distribution on a planet where pretty much everything was in a reasonably temperate zone and clothes were just not a thing. Um, but I think you'd probably see a lot of aliens with clothes in general. Nice. I would guess. All right, let's take two more questions and, and then call it quits with they are. Can we do three? Three. Three. All right, all right. Um, Ram Dan wants to know if you would ever make an episode about craft worlds, like the ones that the Eldars use. Sure. Um, in the kind of the 40K setting, I don't know if we actually get too many really good descriptions of those. The only one I actually remember is from one of the uh, Fabius Bile books for the invading one. Um, but... Uh, I, we could probably do one on artificial planets that were also spaceships. Yeah, that was not like planet ships, but just kind of more of a big one with artificial gravity. Yeah, maybe. Okay. Ours, that great. Uh, thank you for your super chat. Do you think that Tipler oracles and basement universe are possible? We probably will not get a chance to do a Tipler Sonos episode. I really would like to do one on Omega Point. Tipler had a lot of interesting ideas, the controversial ones, and many of them probably not very well based, but uh, we might want to go visit that some more in the future. Um, can you have a basement or attic universe? That is not something I can answer in as much time as we have right now, but that actually does sound like a potentially cool episode, so I'll put that on my maybe list as, as a, uh, as a um, consolation for being able to answer that in the remaining time we have. Okay, last question for today. Dean Lawson. Hey Isaac, what are your thoughts on the simulation hypothesis that claims our universe and reality are actually running on some massive computer system somewhere? Well, that's right back to that same question. Um, totals all the way down, uh, computers all the way up. We have done episodes on the simulation hypothesis. My usual one on that again over and over is, it's not a question of whether or not you live in the simulation. That's not the, the question, right? The question is, does it matter? We already have an awful lot of human belief that's centered around the idea that there was a higher plane to existence, right? This is not a new idea. It's one that we see in pretty much every religion I can think of, honestly. Um, uh, if you're an anthropologist, you don't need to write me telling me about the exceptions. That That's just indicative that I don't know too many of them. Um, you know, whether it's okay, like Midgard versus other places in Norse mythology, obviously Christian, a Judeo Christian, and as uh, Islamic or Buddhist mythology, you see a lot of upper layers to reality. And lower or underworld layers are not always meant to be physically on the same plane of existence. Um, I don't think that's an idea that people have too much problem saying, oh, but I don't live in that reality above, so I'm not real. That's, that's kind of the problem there. In a simulation where we basically are saying it's being done on a computer, you're not real because you're on a computer as opposed to just on some other created lower level of existence by supernatural power. The other thing to remember is what functions in our reality only if it's a simulated ancestor force where you try to specifically make a universe identical to your own in many factors would you even have the same kind of physical rules to allow things like computation so you can't make too many assumptions about what that higher level would be like or what the under levels are like um for instance you can actually have a more populated lower level um just by running it slower or giving it more memory if that subs another level lower and so on there's a lot you could do with that but uh that is another topic for another day though also when we've done some episodes on uh, see our episodes simulation and uh corpus simulation reality 
uh, virtual worlds, uh, forming paradox and simulation hypothesis, and probably a couple of those too. Speaking of which, before we let you go, Crunch1231, thank you for your super chat. And he says, hi, Isaac, I've been watching you almost every day for the past five years. And I just wanted to say thanks for what you do and for making a huge impact on my life. You are very welcome. Uh, thank you so much, everyone, for joining just before we close out. Uh, you've already seen the episodes that are coming out pretty soon. Uh, I think I already um, mentioned, though, as we said, we're going to be doing a poll. I'll try to get up the next 10 minutes or so over on our community tab. Where we're just going to go ahead and get a list of all the various things people have been suggesting during the chat as potential colonizing episodes you know, for the Outward Bound series. And we'll put those up in a poll as soon as I can, hopefully the next 10 minutes or so after I close out the stream. You still have time to submit them, though, since I haven't seen those lists. Again, thank you, everyone, so much for joining us today. And uh, I think I got all of our announcements. So we will see you on Thursday and also, of course, next month. So that will wrap us up for the day. I want to thank everyone for joining us and again if we didn't get to your question, feel free to post it as a comment below and I'll try to get to it this evening. Also you can continue the conversation at any of the forums on Facebook, Reddit, Discord, or our website IsaacArthur.net. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you Thursday.